This is Tech Guide with Stephen Fennec, the place to stay updated and educated. Tech Guide, episode 444. Hello and welcome to the podcast that keeps you updated and educated about the latest consumer tech news and reviews. My name is Stephen Fennec. I'm the editor of the fabulous website techguide.com.au. On this week's show, the Sydney Primary School that Apple has showcased to the world on its website. Why employees want to keep working from home post-COVID, but most decision makers are not on the same page. And the Tech Guide interview, we're going to chat with award-winning sports photographer Phil Hilliard. In the Tech Guide reviews, we take a look at the Lenovo IdeaPad Flex 5 Chromebook. We check out a product that offers a new way of training in the gym. And Afterpay launches a digital card that offers a new in-store shopping experience. And we'll answer all of your tech questions in the Tech Guide help desk. And it's all brought to you by Netgear, the company that keeps you connected and Norton, the company that keeps you protected. An Australian primary school located in the Sydney southwestern suburb of Sadlia, it's St. Therese Catholic Primary School, has been showcased to the world by Apple. This is a school that made the decision a few years ago to begin the an iPad initiative. So every student received an iPad. And this is a school also where it's a community representing lots of different cultures. 73% of students, would you believe, are from non-English speaking backgrounds. So the, there were challenges there. And Apple has featured the school in a global press release that was published on its newsroom. That's the, the news centre on its on its popular website. And this has gone out to the entire world. And it's, it's a case of Apple showcasing this school that's had this remarkable turnaround since deploying iPads a few short years ago. And as a result of that deployment, they were able to pivot to at-home learning at the height of the COVID pandemic. So this is a really cool story where technology has really helped students flourish. They were able to complete their assignments using the native apps on board. So they were able to hand in their assignments using making little videos, audio uh, or, or iMovies, whatever they wanted to do. They were given the opportunity to express themselves in these ways. So they were using Keynote, iMovie, Pages, text-to-speech. They were making stop-motion animation, completing assignments on a wide range of topics. So obviously having fun while they're learning at the same time. And the teachers were also creating their lessons on iMovie. So the students were able to watch the iMovies and have the lesson, the virtual lesson, right there, even during the pandemic. So it was, it really, it prepared them for for that that kind of learning. A lot of schools, I think, were caught off guard. It was a hard transition to make when when COVID forced them to be to be at home and parents had to get involved, and it, it was it was rather difficult to to continue to get get their education. But Saint Therese Catholic Primary School. Definitely, uh, they pulled the right rein here using technology to, to engage their students 
and it is pays amazing dividends. And once once COVID once COVID came around, this school uh, was able to handle it quite easily. the 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 principal of the school, her name's Michelle McKinnon. And uh, she's our story on Tech Guide. She's quoted in our story as uh, as saying just how proud she is of how students were able to share their own passions and interests more freely, even when they were working remotely. And it discovered uh, it, it uncovered a lot of undiscovered talents and strengths. So there's images on our story. You see the students using Apple Pencil to write and draw. They're using the cameras on board as well. So they're really making use of the technology. And Apple thought. What a great example to show St. Therese Primary School, this this humble little school in the southwestern suburbs of Sydney, to the entire world as an example to the world on what's possible with the iPad. And naturally, Apple, very proud of their own product and wanted to use this school as the example of what's possible, what they can do and how students can improve and flourish in, in, their, in their schooling when they've got their hands on the right tools. And in this case, the iPad really did a great job for them there. So yeah, not every day you see an Australian primary school showcased as an Apple distinguished school, but St. Therese Primary School in the southwestern suburbs of Sydney is one of them. If you want to read more about that story, check it out at techguide.com.au. This is Tech Guide with Stephen Fennec. Now, about a year ago was the time when companies were made, making the decision that because of the COVID pandemic, that all staff had to work remotely. They all had to work from home. So the uh, the workers, instead of coming into the office, had to link, link in from home, use their technology. That's why sales of keyboards and mice and, and Wi-Fi routers went through the roof because people were preparing their workspace at home because they knew that's where they were going to have to do their job. So the the commute was from the the kitchen for from breakfast after breakfast to their to their workspace, and in the twelve months that's gone by, there are a lot of people who want to continue working remotely. There's been a really interesting study commissioned by Log Me In. This is the company, the provider of cloud-based remote working solutions. We've heard of GoToMeeting, GoToWebinar, LastPass, and Rescue. This is uh, the, the research shows that nearly three quarters of workers who really enjoy the flexibility that remote working gave them, they want to continue working more remotely in the future. In fact, 83% of those people said they would be more likely to stay at their company if they're allowed to work from home and work more flexibly. 60% even said they're willing to accept a cut in pay to still enjoy that flexibility. Now, we knew a year ago we had no choice but to work remotely, but now that the pandemic is over and the workspace has opened up again, there's a lot of people who don't want to give up that freedom. They don't want to give up that flexibility. But here's the hitch. Employers and decision makers, they're not quite in agreement here. There's a bit of a disconnect because they are still holding on to an antiquated view of remote working rather than seeing it being a competitive offering for their staff, they're kind of stuck in the old way of doing things. And I've always said, I've said this probably on the show many times, work is a thing you do, not a place you go. That has never been more truer than in the last 12 months. Now, 
56% of employees said they they feel they're more productive when they're working remotely. 61% they can get more done in eight hours at home than they could in eight hours at the office. But here's the thing, only 5% of the decision makers agreed. Uh, they, they thought that the workers are more productive in the office and 70% uh, said, the, the decision makers also said that 70% of employees in the office are more trustworthy. So there's this whole, this a balancing act that we're trying to do here. Uh, the study made it quite clear that the companies need to move away from this outdated work model and embrace the way their employees want to work. And, and of course, when, when you look at things like happiness and well-being and even mental health, 62% of employees say they're happier when they're working remotely. Only 40, 44% of employees thought their organisations were effective in offering mental health support. Now, employees are all more likely to feel good about the company they work for, and 90% felt that they were satisfied with their work as well. So I think, look, happy happy employees means good business. And the, the study identified the four areas where companies need to look at. The, the four areas are structure, culture, technology, and compliance. Of course, structure, how, how a workspace is going to be focusing on where, where workers want to, want to work, that whether they want to be in the office, want to be at home, or maybe a mixture of both. I'm seeing that a, a hybrid workspace is now becoming very popular. Uh, in terms of the technology, of course, they have to have the tools and the tech to get their job done, but also to the security. That's another thing that's kind of been overlooked, the having security because a lot of workers are outside the umbrella, the protective umbrella of their IT department and their firewalls. So uh, they, they could be more susceptible to a cyber security and a, and a cyber attack. So uh, that, that's another thing to look at as well. But look, the bottom line is, Companies want to increase productivity levels. They want customers to have a better experience, reduce costs as well. And that's the goal at the end of the day then is all those things combining to increase the revenue of the company. So I think moving forward, I think having that flexibility is already something that, that employees are going to want to know that a company offers. So if, if people are looking for jobs now, I'd say that's one of the factors that they're looking at is that they are offered that kind of flexibility should they want it or should they need it, whether uh, it's something that the decision makers and the employers agree on is yet to be seen. But really interesting study there from LogMeIn. If you want to read more about it, you can check it out at techguide.com.au. Now we come to our tech guide interview, and it's with a an award winning sports photographer named Phil Hilliard. I actually have known Phil for quite some time. I started working with Phil back when I was the sports editor of the Daily Telegraph, and he was this fresh faced young kid from Adelaide who uh, had these amazing skills as a photographer, and he's gone on to win many many awards. He's been around the world on cricket tours, covering Olympic games. And I thought it'd be great to have him on the show for him to give us a few tips, talk about how technology's improved his experience as a photographer, and for him to share a few stories about his job as this amazing sports photographer who, as I said, I've worked with back in the day and I've kept in touch. He's still a mate of mine to this very day. Well, hi, Phil. Welcome to the Tech Guide podcast. How are you going, mate? 
I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Uh, it's a pleasure, mate. Well, we should tell people, well, we, we worked together back in the day. I, I was sports editor when you were this uh, fresh-faced young photographer out of Adelaide. And uh, early in your career, uh, I was actually the sports editor and I got I got the opportunity to work with you. Do you remember those heady days, mate, and how I influenced your career? <laughs> <laughs> I sure do. And uh, I remember them fondly, Stephen. It was... Uh Certainly, good time. It was a big. It was a bit of a daunting uh, prospect to make the big jump from from Adelaide uh, to Sydney. But um, I only came for two years, really, for the Sydney Olympics. Uh, you know, I'm still here. But yeah. I, I do recall, uh, and, and um, obviously, you, your awards speak for themselves. But I do remember at the time there was the, this this approach to your photography especially your sports photography, was just something that we hadn't seen. For me personally, it, it was like you were sort of bringing in a new a new attitude and a new approach to sports photography. Was that, was that your intention? Like how, did, how did you approach this when you, when you first sort of got into the game there? Look, it's nice that you think that, but uh, probably not. I think, you know, I, photography really, you, you're teaching yourself as you go along and I guess you're trying to push the boundaries, but you're really trying to just keep improving. And, you know, we worked together, I think that's probably about 23 years ago, but, you know, I'm still trying to get better each day, really, by uh, continuing to look hard and, um, you know, trying to see what the best possible picture is you can capture. I do recall at the time, I think we had a bit of a joke about it, where the, you did like sort of the you, your photos had really interesting lighting and there was a lot of, you weren't scared to put a lot of dark, dark sections to the image. I, I remember I used to I used to joke with you saying, oh, that's a great place to put a headline. I can put all this in here. And I, and <laughs> I think you were cringing in the background. But that, that's what I remember about your photos, that you really took the time to compose them, especially when they were they were set up. So, so we, we had a, you, you went out to meet some sportsman or a cricketer or something. You really took the time to set up the shot, which is something at the time I hadn't seen before. So you were going to all this trouble. T- tell us about that and, and your approach there. Look, I guess I worked for, you know, with and for a lot of journalists. And I guess, you know, maybe I tried to educate in a way a lot of people what I thought was a good picture. And it wasn't just trying to take it, but it was uh, banging the door down to people like yourself to try and get the images that you want run in the paper and a picture can draw a person's eye and make them go to that story. And I guess I was always trying to do that. And, you know, as I sort of got into it and started getting into cricket tours and whatever in different parts of the world, I was just always trying to really uh, paint a picture of what it was like to be where I was and, and give our readers an insight into you know what was going on. Let's go back to the beginning. What spurred you to get into photography? Like, When's the first time you, you got a camera in your hand and thought, you know what, this is pretty good, I'm going to, I'm going to go on with this? Well, t- take us through that. I actually still remember it vividly. I was 13 years old and I'd made a decision. I think I'd got broken ribs playing footy and always wanted to be the star sportsman, as I can see my son now wants to be. But I reckon it, you know, I think I broke my ribs twice at a young age and then I thought, so I thought maybe uh, how else am I going to find a life around sport? So um, I just, uh, a family friend that was a historian, he produced a, a book on the history of South Australian football and in it he had some photos and I just happened to ask him where he got the photos from. And he said he'd taken them himself. And I thought, what a great idea. And that's really, it was as simple as that. I um, just decided that I was going to take up photography and become a sports photographer. And I guess, you know, I worked 
pretty hard to make that happen at a young age. And um, I just thought, you know, free ticket yeah. to the footy and um, <laughs> what better way to, to spend your life really watching sport and it's been so, an amazing journey. I'd imagine. So did you do any courses or did you do, you do it a cadetship? Like how did you build your skills then and get into the newspaper game? Yeah, I did a cadetship. I landed uh, a job as a copy boy in the darkroom of the Adelaide News and that was pretty much straight out of school and uh, there was no guarantee that you'd become a photographer. But, you know, if you you put your head down and um, listened and learned, you know, you were well on your way to uh, becoming, if you showed some initiative to be able to you know, get that, that dream job, which was the cadetship. And, you know, those early days were pretty much getting people's lunches and feeding parking meters and going to the bank for them and you're know, doing a lot of a lot of rubbish really. But yeah. I remember doing I got, the same thing myself as before I became a cadet yeah. journalist myself, mate. I know, I know exactly where you're coming from there. But let's mate, I'm just gonna read through I'm on your website, philhilliard.com, and you have in the meantime, right, you've won nine Walkley Awards. You've been named Australian Press Photographer of the Year twice. You've had you've been News Award Best Photo in two thousand and seven. AFL Award Best Action Photo in 2007. You've been on every cricket tour, England, India, Sri Lanka, South Africa. You've covered countless grand finals. You've been to five consecutive Olympics, two Commonwealth Games, three Cricket World Cups, and you even covered the Boxing Day tsunami in Sri Lanka. I'd covered the cricket tour to Sri Lanka earlier that year, and the tsunami happened in various regions. You know, quick decisions are made by newspapers at the time about getting people on planes. And they thought, because I knew the lay of the land over there, that I could go in and do Sri Lanka. So it was uh, certainly one um, in, incredible week and, you know, a really sad occasion for the world, really. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you do put your, uh, your journalism cap on when you get there and, you know, you're trying to show people uh, what is actually happening and, you know, hopefully they can get the support they need, you know, to help rebuild the yeah. devastation that it was. Would have been pretty hard to take a lot of devastation. It's certainly not, it's not, uh, it's not as a, sort of celebrated as a sports event, isn't it? It's a different, different approach. But still, you had to call on the same set of skills, didn't you, to, to get the job done? Sure, you do. I mean, taking photos is not easy. Like, I've never actually found the job easy at all. It's, you know, there's always so many things running against you, whether that's, the sun popping behind a cloud when you need the sun out or, you know, it's pouring rain or anything can go against you. So it's just a constant test of your ability to try and create. And, you know, when I've got my eye to the camera, I'm, I'm not really thinking about anything else other than trying to compose and, you know, produce quality images. I remember reading recently you just talked about Steve Waugh and he got out for handling the ball. And I think you were the only. You were one of the only photographers to capture that moment. Tell us about that. Well, look, what I first say about that is that Steve and I have done a few talks over the years, and Steve doesn't like that picture at all <laughs> because it only happened. Uh, six, it was the sixth time it ever happened in the history of Test cricket. Uh, it's a pretty rare dismissal. And back then, we were on the early, the very early uh, digital SLR cameras, so they were only two frames a second and five point seven uh, meg per file. So they were they were pretty small and, and obviously not having the motor drive. And I remember feeling quite ill that day. I'd had a bit of deli belly and just the heat and humidity in Chennai and it was kind of getting on top of me that day. It, um, it can get pretty tough photographing the cricket in the heat and I remember really struggling and I'd actually just jumped on the phone to the 
Australian dressing room and got the team fitness trainer, Jock Campbell, who kindly uh, came out with some, some salts and, uh, and a banana for me and, and tried to get me feeling a little bit better because photographing cricket, you can't really go and sit in the grandstand for a while and have a rest because you're going to miss something. So, And no sooner he'd actually left, Steve Waugh played this sweep shot, the ball went up to the air, and it spun, and as it spun, it came back towards him. And I remember, actually, I'm sure I actually heard Matthew Hayden at the other end just yell out, look out. And it kind of made me react and release the shutter, and there's one frame with Steve just t- touching the ball with his hand. And, and there it was, and Cole Allen, the editor back in Sydney, was watching the TV and immediately said, I want that for the front page. So straight away, the, the picture editor was on the phone finding out one, if I'd got it or if anybody at the ground had, had it. Yeah, you know, it's always a nice feeling to say yes yeah. when uh, when they're looking for something. You mentioned earlier too the the early days of having the digital SLRs. I remember when I was sports editor and you guys had your SLRs for the Sydney Olympics. What sort of improvement have we seen? The, the improvement of digital SLRs over the years has been remarkable, hasn't it? Like, talk us through that. How How has that made your job easier, the improvement in the technology? Oh, look, it certainly has. When I started, we were loading bulk rolls of uh, black and white film, and then we transitioned into colour negative film, and then, uh, of course, we, we went to digital. So digital itself made, you know, a, an incredible difference because, you know, while photography is trial and error, we used to have to wait until we processed, until we saw what mistakes we made. But immediately using the digital, you could click on the screen and then just keep working and trying to improve. So... Overnight, it basically changed how uh, we all became to work. And then, obviously, you know, I'm not I'm not technical based. I don't I don't talk technical lingo. I think a lot of people, particularly the amateur side of photographers, perhaps focus too much on all that st- uh, side of things rather than just getting out and actually taking the picture. And uh, that's the number one thing you need to focus on. But technology wise, yeah, they just keep yeah. improving. And, and you know, you talk about the Sydney Olympic time and that era and that same era of 2001, the India cricket tour I did, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to have exhibitions where those pictures are uh, absolutely massive posters on the wall because I can't blow them up that big because uh-huh. the quality, the quality's not there. So maybe when I put out a book one day, that those, uh, those might be the smaller ones in the book, but <laughs> you know, they still have a great level of importance to sure. me. And what about, it's not just, a, as, a, as a, a, a photo journalist, it's not just taking the photo, it's also getting the photo back to the, the news desk and the sports desk, isn't it? I remember waiting for your images, not that you kept me waiting a long time, but that that's the other challenge, isn't it? Now, getting the photos back, that's improved out of sight too, hasn't it? The It sure has. When I first started here in Sydney, we were, you know, you'd be out at a game at Penrith and do have to jump in the car and bang it down the M4 to get back to the office to try and uh, process and and then get your pictures in for for addition and then obviously with digital we started doing them on the spot and I think that India tour of 2001 was a bit sort of groundbreaking in itself it was the first one that was really captured on TV here of the subcontinent tour Uh, so everyone was back watching and and then for me to be able to get the pictures back quickly I had a giant satellite phone that I took which had this huge dish that you had to unfold and I think it was about 43 degrees southwest or something like that was the, <laughs> the spot where I had to pick this satellite up and I could basically, my goal was actually to get the picture back before the next ball was bowled. So if someone got out and there was a wicket, which is generally, you know, the pictures come from that, 
I would try and get my pictures back before that next ball was even bowled. And it's been like that ever since. Um, but something like rugby league, you're running around all over the place and then have still try and get the time to get back to your computer and, yeah. and choose that time to, to do it. Um, and yeah. I think back to the Tedesco try a couple of years ago and right at the end, game three in the balance, 20 all. And not only do you have to be lucky enough to, to put yourself in the right position to get that picture, but at that stage, my computer's up the other end of the ground. And as soon as I've got those pictures, I am bolting to the other end of the ground oh, wow. to actually edit because I, you know, whatever I'd taken before in that night, kind of meant nothing. It was the, the, the front page, sits, as soon as it's 20 all, the front page sits empty again. There's nobody, you're waiting for that moment. And as a photographer, you're, you're constantly trying to tell yourself and guess and anticipate what's happening. But as soon as that moment happens, if you've got the images, you you get back and you nail it down and send it to the to the paper and um, and then you can relay it and, you know, you know before you know it, that's, it's on page one. Now, I really love your your portrait shots, your setups. Uh, you, I love the ones you do at the ECG. I think you've done some great cricket photos and AFL images. How much of what you do on the day is in camera? So, do you what we see in the newspaper and online the next day? How much of that is your work on the day, or is that a lot of Photoshop work? Or do you try to nail it in the camera, in the lens, on the day? Oh, most definitely you do. I mean, I've, certain things I may do a lot of preparation and planning beforehand, particularly if I think back to some of my cricket captain's portraits. A lot of those are shot at about 8 a.m. on New Year's Day when the rest of the country's asleep. Um, but I'm normally at the SCG by about 6, 6.30 on New Year's Day and setting up, but I'll probably go there the week before and try and work out what I'm actually going to do. And I may even, you know, set lighting up and actually have a practice with it. So I just have to execute. I don't try and trouble the athletes too much and I don't try and do too much. I try and put my effort into making some, you know, one image uh, stand out and then just try and you know the captain just basically has to walk into set you execute the picture and yeah. and that's it and then yeah, it's, yes it's all done in camera I'm I don't do any yes we photoshop for enhancing pictures and you know you might darken backgrounds and burn them in or anything but there's no there's no cloning or anything like that what we do so yeah. you, you it's as pure photography as it is you're trying whatever you've got whatever you're looking at on the screen is uh, is pretty similar to what you're producing what what's one image that stands out I, I, i've seen so many of yours what's what's one that turned out way better than you thought that you know you did a bit of preparation and that you're really pleased with the results can you think of one or two i guess some things where you're up against the elements where you're really you're really relying on what's happening with the weather what's happening with the wind you know if you're out with the with all your big lighting equipment and the wind starts blowing, you're, everything's got to change because you're not going to be able to produce it all and your lights are going to blow over. And I think um, maybe a portrait I shot of Buddy for the AFL Indigenous round down at Barangaroo. Yeah. It was one thing that just it kind of came together. You go there, have a look, you try and choose your spot because you're only going to get one crack at it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no way I'm going to mess Lance around and try and walk him all over the place and you know take do 15 different settings and whatever and I guess prob- one of the reasons why I've, I've perhaps been able to gain respect off the athletes is because I don't mess them around and I try and go hard at making that one picture work uh, from the beginning and just the lighting and stuff that day it just tended to it, the wind had dropped and just the timing of, of it all yeah it kind of worked out awesome. uh, but you know there's plenty of times you get 
you get lucky and I photographed him again with Latrell Mitchell together ahead of both codes Indigenous round and the timing of it all was around around sunset and I'd said to Bud early that morning at training, you know, I'll see you tonight and he said, oh, no, I don't finish till five. Like, and uh, I said, mate, you can't be late because sunset was at 5.05 or something, so you cannot be late because that was the, the timing of it. And Latrell was there and I was waiting for Buddy and out comes this beautiful sunset. And it was amazing. <laughs> and uh, then Buddy walked up the hill, fully dressed, ready to go. So it was one of those moments that probably made the image 30 seconds after he arrived and, really? and that was it. Now, in 2014, you were also named as a Canon master. So that, that that's a pretty big honour, isn't it? So you're obviously a big, uh, big fan of Canon's equipment. Oh, I certainly am. It's a brand that uh, I've been with for a long time, perhaps the mid-90s, I guess. They're a reliable, tough camera. They're, they're, they're perfect for what I do, really. It's, you know, the, the camera's taken absolute punishment as a sports photographer, and, you know, they're thrown around, and a lot of frames are taken. A great camera that continue to produce, you know, good camera after good camera. It's always exciting when, uh, when the next model's coming out, and, and generally it's uh, before an Olympic Games, so... Really happy to be using Canon and uh, look forward to continuing our relationship. I think there's a lot of people listening who are photographers. They're, they're enthusiasts. They've got now an opportunity to listen to an award-winning photographer like yourself. Can you offer some tips? Like earlier you mentioned, look, it's, it's don't get too bogged down in the technical thing. Take your photograph. So, so can you give us some tips on what, what people need to do to nail that good photo? Yeah, look, definitely. That's what you've got to focus on the image and what you're looking at. And once the, the sort of amateur photographer can get past the technical side of things and worrying about the technical side of things, the most important thing is they need to look and find the picture. And, you know, you look through that viewfinder, you're basically just looking through a little square and your job is to play. It's just a blank canvas we're working with. Your job is to place things nicely in, in, in that viewfinder and whether that's working with good light and but you've got to work on composition and be able to compose your picture and you know it's, you know when your family take a family photo of yourself on the phone and whatever and you turn around and your mum's taking a photo of, <laughs> of you or something and the, the, the tree or the clothesline's growing out of your head that, that doesn't work you've, you've people make the mistake all the time of just not looking and seeing and if you can if you can learn composition and and also put really good feeling into your, your photography how do you I mean think, feeling? Yeah, what, how do you do that what do you mean by that well i'm not sure about, about that but pictures have got to move people yeah. i think yeah look the the real key is to just look around that view, viewfinder that's the first thing that you do and that that's why I'm completely exhausted by at the end of any day's shooting because that's what I'm doing the whole time is constantly looking and you know trying to place things so it looks nice in the image and tell us uh, I've seen your your website philhilliard.com I'll link it on on the tech guide website that's a, that's got some amazing uh, some amazing shots from your career amazing overview of some of you just some brilliant shots there so tell us where else can people see your work so you, you've got an Instagram account too haven't you where we can see some of your best work there yeah probably uh, follow me on Instagram which is just my name Phil Hilliard um, P-H-I-L-H-I-L-L-Y-A-R-D you know take a look at my website and uh, yeah. you can have a look back and maybe you'll see some of the things I've talked about there with in regards to uh, the tips of um, 
or taking photos. It's become it's become a real showcase, hasn't it, Instagram for for your your enthusiasts and photographers. I know it's it's an area where we often share. It's like a more a more a social media platform, but it is has become, hasn't it, Instagram a, a real showcase of great photography. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, you know, you're kind of self publishing some some work in a way and you know photographers gripe and newspaper photographers gripe always has been over the years is oh they used the wrong one <laughs> that sports editor of mine he used the wrong one that's probably why I, I started getting down to limiting them down when I'd shoot a big portrait they would just get one yeah right you never then, said that about me I hope mate <laughs> well um, I had a good no, eye but, I reckon mate I had a good eye for your stuff no you did I, you were probably the first sports editor that was probably willing to uh to let me just produce one image. And um, I felt that if I'm, you know, if I've created it from the start, it's my idea, no one's asked me to actually go and do this this picture. I've worked the relationship with the athlete or whatever. I felt that it needed, you know, the right picture that I'd worked on, worked towards. And if I'd achieved the result that I was after, I felt that that's all it needed. So it was one frame, which was what sent. And, and generally that, you know, that held up a, front page of the paper, back page of sport, cover of sport. And, you know, I don't really ever remember getting arguments from from my editors about that because yeah. I've always found that if I could make myself happy with what I produced, then everybody else would be happy with it. How do you feel now newspapers are kind of declining your work is sort of being featured more on the web rather than on the front page of a newspaper? Is it the same feeling having your photo online as it was on the front page of the newspaper? Oh, look, it's, yeah, it's, it's not. It's, um, you know, the glory days of uh, the newspapers, uh, you know, it was all I wanted to do as a kid was to work for papers. And then obviously they got much better and better over the years at, at the quality of papers that they produce and the quality of, the, of photography that was in it. And, you know, how photography really, you could build papers around them. And look, you still can do that. But obviously, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit less. And, you know, I'll always be pretty proud of, you know, the times I had and, you know, what I guess I've left behind in newspapers and, you know, those pictures, if you still pull up papers down down the track, you know, my images are still going to be there. Absolutely. Well, you definitely should be proud of what you've done, mate, and your website's a great showcase of your work, philhilliard.com. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Steve, great to catch up and uh, thanks for having me along. This is Tech Guide. The Tech Guide podcast is proudly sponsored by Norton. They're the company that can keep you and your family safe online. There's been a rapid increase in cybercrime with constant data breaches, online scams and ransomware, just to name a few. Norton's all-in-one cyber safety solution, Norton 360 Premium, now comes with dark web monitoring powered by LifeLock, which helps notify you if your personal information is discovered on the dark web. It also includes device security and secure VPN with bank-grade encryption to help keep you private, online, plus a password manager, PC safe cam, and more. With Norton's award-winning security and globally trusted protection across 50 million customers, rest assured Norton 360 Premium with dark web monitoring is the all-in-one protection for your devices and data. Norton 360 Premium is available now at leading retailers. And now, a Tech Guide review with Stephen Fennec. First up in the Tech Guide reviews this week, we're talking Chromebooks and in particular the Lenovo IdeaPad Flex 5. But before I talk about the this actual Chromebook, it should be noted that Chromebooks have now overtaken 
Mac, the Mac operating system as the number two most popular operating system in the world. So Windows is obviously the, the, top, the top operating system. Uh, now Chromebook has hit almost 10% of the market, leaving it ahead of Apple, which is just shy of 8% of the market. So I, I found that really interesting. I think uh, a lot of students working from, from home, learning from home, a lot of customers who decided to adopt a Chromebook as their go-to laptop probably helped those figures. And just for those who don't understand, a Chromebook, it's not a Mac it's not a PC, not running Windows. It's running the Google platform. So here's a laptop, looks like a normal laptop with a high-def screen, keyboard, the whole whole box and dice, but it is powered through the Chrome browser. So the operating system is the Chrome browser, links you, links you to the, the Google online platform. So you can use Gmail, Docs, Sheets, Slides, Google Drive, all, all the Google platform stuff you're able to access on a Chromebook. And because it doesn't have this big bulky operating system that has to boot up every time, the, it's almost an instant on laptop. The other factor too, again, without having to pay for the licenses of these soft, of the software and uh, have these overheads uh, of, the, of using that type of software, it's also much cheaper. And we're talking hundreds of dollars cheaper. The, the Lenovo IdeaPad Flex 5, which has a 13.3-inch screen, 8 gig of RAM, 128 gig SSD drive, Intel Core i5 10th gen processor, it's only $899. So I think if a Windows or PC version with those kind of specs, you'd be looking at well over a thousand bucks. But how does it perform? In a word, well, two words, really well. Uh, the, the IdeaPad Flex 5 has that nice HD 13.3 inch screen and is really quick. With 8 gig of RAM, which is plenty to run lots of applications at the same time. And when you are running different applications, it's just a different tab in the Chrome browser. So when you've got, you might have Docs in one, Gmail in one, your Google Chrome browser itself in another. So that's, uh, that, that's how it's represented on your screen with the different tabs for you to look at there. So... Uh, pretty slick, this this new uh, IdeaPad Flex 5. Weighs in at 1.35 kilos, so that's not too bad. Thickness of 17.95 millimetres. This makes it, I think, an ideal choice for students. Students, a lot of students use Chromebook. A lot of schools encourage it. It's got a, a battery that can last all day, as school laptops are required to do because students can't take their charges to school. And it being Google-based, Google-based platform, again, a lot cheaper than Mac or Windows laptops. Has all the connectivity you'd expect as well. Same wireless connectivity through Wi-Fi, Bluetooth 5.0. Physical ports has two USB-C ports, one on either side. So you can easily choose which side you want to have the cord to charge the laptop, left or right. It's up to you. There's also a micro SD card slot, a USB 3.1 port, and a really easy to access volume control as well on the left edge. Uh, and again, full-size keyboard, so really nice, accurate and comfortable typing experience at the same time. 
And the touchscreen display, being called a flex, it's not called flex for nothing. The touchscreen display can actually be folded back so you can use the device like a tablet. And when you do hold it in that portrait, portrait mode, the screen immediately adjusts so it makes it easy for you to view your work. Uh, and there's also a stylus mode as well, so it allows you to, to write on the screen, capture different sections of the screen, write a note, use the stylus as a pointer or as a magnifying glass. Uh, and being a flip flip screen, that that screen allows you to maybe flip the screen back, rest it on the surface. So it's at what that tent mode they call it. So if you're not working, you might want to just power up your Netflix or whatever through the browser and watch your content when it's uh, time to relax. And when you're ready then to go back to laptop mode, it's simply flipping the display back to its regular position and it's, it looks like a laptop again. Under the hood, 8 gig of RAM is very impressive. 128 gig of storage, not a lot, but being a Chromebook, you can also take advantage of cloud storage. You don't need to be uh, lugging around a lot of memory on the device itself. Uh, or alternatively, if you needed to, you can connect a portable hard drive via the USB-C or the USB 3.1 port. So if you want to have even more memory. 10-hour uh, battery life has uh, easily get you through the day, even through a school day or a work day, whichever one you want. But the bottom line, look, this Lenovo IdeaPad Flex 5 Chromebook offers great value, great choice for users who want to stay connected. They want a fast, reliable device. If they need to connect, create, stay productive, the Chromebook could be the answer. So it's there is an alternative to Mac and Windows. Uh, if you want to check it out, the Lenovo IdeaPad Flex 5, 899 bucks, Great bang for your buck there. It's a Chromebook. Uh, plenty of information there. If you want to read our complete review, you can check that out at techguide.com.au. Now, it's not many products cross my desk where I have to learn about a whole new way of doing things, but the Saga Cuffs is one such product. They were sent to me and uh, offered to me a review. I've ha I have had a look at them, and basically what they are, they are cuffs like straps that you position either on your arms or on your thighs to help you facilitate what's colloquially known as tourniquet training, also known as blood flow restriction, BFR for short. Now, BFR or tourniquet training, if you want to want to call it that, it goes around your arm or your leg, and it, the idea of it is to restrict blood flow to the muscle. So what this means is it causes the muscle to fatigue faster and work harder if you're in the gym or whatever you happen to be doing, and that way you will get a faster result. So the benefit is getting increased muscle size and strength faster than you normally would. Now, Saga, the company behind the cuff, says that the results of BFR training can be seen in as little as two weeks. You can see the results, which is better and faster than tra just traditional weight training. Now, Saga says the cuffs are the world's first auto-inflating BFR cuffs. They're completely wireless. They connect to an app. Uh, they, they offer intelligent and intuitive calibration as well for your own safety. And you can control them through the companion app on your smartphone. It works on iPhone and on Android. Uh, so uh, easy to link up through there. But before you get started, and I tried this myself, before you do that, you need to go through a BFR screening. 
to ensure, and this is all happens through the app, to ensure you don't have any medical conditions that could offer, that could maybe put you at risk during the tourniquet trading training. So what you go through a list and it advises, first of all, if you feel pins and needles or numbness, pain, then you should stop training straight away, seek medical advice. But the screening tool takes you through a number of boxes where you they ask you about medical conditions like thrombophilia, pregnancy, infections, diabetes, peripheral neuropathy, varicose veins, obesity, uh, and also ask if you're a smoker. Uh, so it, uh, it puts all those questions and then offers you an answer to say whether you're a low, medium, or high risk. So that it does have your back right there. If you decide to still go ahead, if you're a low or medium risk, then you could probably still go ahead. If you're a high risk, you'd want to seek some medical attention before you try this. But the the next step, if you want to, if you are continuing, is to pair the cuffs through the app. And when they're connected, you need to specify whether you're going to be used on your arm or your leg. And when you when you are calibrating, uh, you you got to it, it applies a bit of pressure on your arm or leg. It's like getting your anyone who's ever had their blood pressure taken. It feels like that. It inflates, and you got to keep your muscle relaxed. So it in, it inflates on the relaxed limb, works out the best pressure that it needs to apply during your workout. So after you finish that calibration, then you're ready to get going. Well, once they're paired, you can start a timer so you can hear and feel the cuffs inflate for your session. So whether you're doing your arm exercises or whatever, whatever exercise you're doing, you can turn it on and then say between sets or you're changing exercise, you can turn it off and then when you're ready to go again, turn it on. And this tighter sensation when you're doing your weights, it, it takes a bit of getting used to. It's not something you can do right away and if the, the best way I can describe it is feeling like you're getting a deeper burn. Anyone, anyone who's ever done a solid weight session, they feel that little burn in their muscles afterwards. Well, imagine that even deeper, like you're feeling that burn even further. And that's the whole idea of the BFR is to try to get you those results even faster. We use the cuffs on our arms. Uh, I'd imagine it'd be the same effect if you're using it on your leg, you place it around your thigh. Uh, they're available in medium and large size as well. So don't worry if you need a bigger one. There is a large as well to to try out. And the if if I reckon anyone who's attempting this, I had no idea what BFR training was. So I had no clue, but I can see the benefits for a, 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 a fitter person. I don't think this is something that uh, if you're unfit or getting back to fitness – I don't think this is something you should attempt. I think BFR is meant for those athletes who are on the fitter side and want to increase their fitness even further. So I think you, if you if you are medium to to high fitness athletes, I think this is should be something for them. If you if you're brand new at the gym, we're getting back to fitness after a long spell. Just do it the normal way. I don't think this is for you. The, the app, I think, will sort you out anyway if you if you have any of those conditions. But my my advice would be, if you're pretty fit to begin with, then maybe give the Saga cuffs a try. They're available in the two sizes I mentioned, medium and large, priced at two forty nine for the medium, two seventy nine for the large. 
and uh, uh, interesting. I, I never knew about this this type of training before. I, I heard about these products, and they sent them over to me. And I can see the benefit. I can, I really can, for the right person. I think if you're on the fitter side, then it's definitely something you should try out. If you want to check it out, see the images and uh, see the actual product itself, you can check it out at techguide.com.au. Well, Afterpay has been around for a little while, really successful startup. They've been around for a few years now. And basically what Afterpay does is offer customers a way to pay off something with four equal interest-free installments. And this the, the buy now, pay later market is booming in Australia. Afterpay is one, ZipPay is another, PayPal, pay in four, I think is coming in the second half of the year. So this is something that's really popular with customers who maybe don't want to pay off everything straight away. They want to spread the pain, spread out the, spread out the price. Uh, it's very popular, not surprisingly, with, with women, females, customers are out, way outnumber men. And it's used in all types of verticals. So for fashion, whatever, booking holidays, hotels, all those sorts of verticals, it is very popular there as well. But Afterpay has just gone another another step further and now offering a new in-store payment solution. Before Beforehand, to pay uh, in-store, you'd have to generate a barcode through the Afterpay app and then flash that in the store and if the store's participating in Afterpay, then Bob's your uncle and you can spread out your payments. Well, now what they've done, they've created a digital card which allows you to tap and go to the, the contactless payment like you would a regular credit or debit card or on, on your device. Uh, so it comes up, if you're an Apple user, it comes up in your digital wallet. If you're a Google Android user, it comes up as part of Google Pay and when it's time to you, and I did a demonstration. I went down to uh, to Bailey Nelson, a glasses and prescription frame store, and I saw a demonstration down there. And basically, what you pick up, pick what pick up what you want to buy, take it to the counter. When it's time to read it, ready to check out, you open the Afterpay app, and then there is an a, a an offer uh, option for you to pay with the Afterpay card. And once this is tapped, the card appears on the screen like it does on your iPhone and Android when you're using Apple Pay or Google Pay. Uh, you double-click the side button if you're on an iPhone to authorize the payment and then tap it on the terminal and uh, and then you're done. So what will happen there is that you'll they'll either take out the first of the four payments on the spot I understand if you've been an Afterpay customer for a while, if you've got a good if you've got good credit, if you've been paying everything on time and not incurring any fees. What they've also do is even defer your first payment for two weeks. So if you're new to Afterpay, they'll take out the first payment instantly. But if you've been with Afterpay for a while, I understand they sometimes make the first take the first payment out after two weeks. So you get a bit of grace. You get a two-week grace period. Now, a lot of people are wondering, why would I want to use this? Why can't I just use my credit card and just pay for the whole thing straight away? Uh, well, for, for younger users who may not even have a credit card, this is kind of gives them the 
what dates the payments are coming out and they know exactly what they're up for. I think it's for the customer who knows that they might, they might get paid fortnightly or weekly. They know they've got a payment. They're getting paid in a few days, but they want to get this dress or this pair of glasses, whatever, now uh, so they can spread it out then, knowing that in a, in a few days' time their monthly salary is going to drop in and they can even choose, if they want to, to pay everything off as well. So you can choose to either do your payments for interest-free payments or if you want to, just pay it out. Just pay it off instantly. So that, that gives them the flexibility there as well. Uh, look, this is really popular, and I can understand why it's appealing to a lot of customers because uh, if something costs, say, 500 bucks, and if you don't have your 500 there but you really want it, really need it, then being able to spread out the $125 payments over uh, the period of a month and a half is uh, is attractive to customers, as long as they don't keep piling on the afterpay uh, purchases. So I think uh, still a bit of willpower is needed there as well, but that added flexibility, I think, is what's attractive to a lot of customers. The afterpay digital card is available now, and you can check it out at techguide.com.au. This is Tech Guide with Stephen Fennec. The Tech Guide podcast is proudly supported by Netgear. They're Australia's number one Wi-Fi brand. Is your Wi-Fi struggling to keep up with your streaming, work, gaming, video calling and more? And what happens if you're doing all of that at once? When you're connected to your world by Wi-Fi, be sure it's the best. Bring your Wi-Fi up to speed with Orbi Wi-Fi 6 from Netgear. Orbi Wi-Fi 6 is the best and latest in Wi-Fi. It covers your entire home with the fastest Wi-Fi for uninterrupted streaming, video calling and working and learning from home on more devices than ever before in any part of the house. It's Wi-Fi perfectly engineered. Are you ready for the best Wi-Fi ever? Find out more at netgear.com.au slash best Wi-Fi. And now answering all your tech questions, the Tech Guide Help Desk. The Tech Guide Help Desk brought to you by our good friends at Belkin, belkin.com forward slash au. They sell cables, they sell batteries, speakers, stands, you name it. If it's an accessory you're after for your computer or for your phone, Belkin has got you covered. The question I keep getting, I, I'm often asked, uh, especially people, there are two, two, two approaches to this question, wired or wireless. And the two approaches are for... Uh, entertainment needs and security needs. If you're building a home and you want to be connected everywhere, I would highly recommend running cable from where you know the modem is going to be located to every room in the house. So have a Cat6 cable so that every room in the house should have a Cat6 connection for the internet and an aerial cable. So we're talking... If we're talking offices, bedrooms, Cat6 connection and a, a, a uh, aerial for the TV, all of pay TV, whatever you happen to do, they, and the, all these cables run back to the modem, the router, so that you don't need to worry about your Wi-Fi. Now, the reason we have Wi-Fi and why it's so popular is because we can't rebuild our house and rewire our house. Luckily, thanks to products from our sponsors, Netgear, they've got some great Orbi Wi-Fi 6. Their, their routers offer fantastic coverage. But wired will always beat wireless because it's there. It's always there. Wi-Fi sometimes drops out or something happens. It's, it's just the nature of the technology. But wired always wins. 
So if you have the opportunity of wiring your entire home, yeah, you'll still have a Wi-Fi network because not everything can be plugged into your to your network. If you've got a security camera that, that's Wi-Fi only, there's nowhere to, to connect that with a cable and all these other smart products like smart light bulbs and switches and stuff. So you still need Wi-Fi. But if you're gaming, streaming, doing all these things, having that wired connection back to the router is is a godsend. Same thing for security cameras. There are there are options to have wired security cameras. So you don't have to worry then about having to charge batteries. You don't have to worry about connecting them wirelessly, whether something, one of them's not connected again. or and, and often those wired systems can lead back to a central system, which is recording. There's a hard drive. That's another option too. So if you are in renovating or building, go with the wires. It is a lot better than going wireless. And that is the end of our show for this week. Everything we've spoken about, you can find at our website, techguide.com.au. And feel free to get in touch with us. You can either send me an email at info at techguide.com.au or better still, visit the Tech Guide website, click on the Ask Stephen icon on the right-hand side, and that email will come through to me as well. We want to give a special thanks, too, to our sponsors, Netgear, the brand you can trust for all your Wi-Fi needs, and also Norton, the company that can keep you and your family safe online. Please support the sponsors who support the Tech Guide podcast. Thank you once again for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week. So until then, stay safe and stay connected. (laughs) 